Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. When it comes to content moderation and the regulation of harmful content on social media, there are various metaphors at play for how to think about doing it. One that we've explored on this podcast in the past is to see it as a form of administration, or what legal scholar Evelyn Dueck calls the rough online analog of offline judicial adjudication of speech rights, with legislative-style substantive rules being applied over and over again to individual pieces of content by a hierarchical bureaucracy of moderators. But some scholars, like Dueck, see limitations in this way of thinking. That includes Rachel Griffin, a PhD candidate and lecturer at Sciences Po Law School, who recently published a new paper in the Journal of Intellectual Property, Information Technology, and E-Commerce Law, titled The Sanitized Platform. The paper employs thinking from feminist legal scholar Vicki Schultz about U.S. law on sexual harassment in the workplace, and uses it as a framework to critique approaches to content moderation and social media regulation. Here's Rachel. My name is Rachel Griffin. Um, I'm a PhD candidate in the law school at Sciences Po Paris. Rachel, what is the focus of your research? Um, so my PhD is about um, how social media are regulated in the EU, and specifically trying to look at that from the perspective of how it affects kind of structural social inequalities, like sexism, racism, homophobia, and so on. And so, for example, how different groups are represented on online media, how they're sort of differentially harmed by kind of policy problems that we're familiar with, like hate speech or misinformation, and trying to evaluate how well the law in the EU can actually deal with those problems. So this latest paper is connected to that effort, and you have adopted a kind of framework uh, from a feminist legal scholar to look at how social media platforms think about their content moderation practices and implement those content moderation practices. Who is Vicki Schultz and why is she important in this context? Um, so Vicki Schultz is a feminist legal scholar from the U.S. And her work that I'm drawing on in the paper is actually, it's nothing to do with technology at all. It's in the field of employment law and sexual harassment. But I think that there's a lot that we can learn from it in the field of social media. I think that actually if we think about sort of structurally what um, a lot of law, for example, on content moderation is trying to do, it's actually quite similar to the regulation of sexual harassment in the workplace in that you're sort of concerned about what individuals are doing. You don't want sort of employees to, to harass each other and you don't want kind of users to post illegal content or hate speech or whatever it may be. But instead of trying to regulate those people directly, you kind of try to regulate the, the powerful sort of um, actors, whether that's the employers or the platforms that you're hoping can, can exercise some control over those people. So I think that some of the basic aims are quite similar. And I think that the points that, that Vicki Schultz makes about sexual harassment law specifically in the U.S. are extremely relevant to, to the regulation of social media. Tell me just a little bit more about Schultz's approach. What did she set out to do and what was the sort of theoretical insight that you're bringing forward here? So in these two papers, which also sort of build on some of her earlier empirical work, Schultz is criticizing what she calls the sexual model of sex harassment law the kind of the law in the US, which is, is seemingly very broad and would seem to ban any kind of sexist discrimination in the workplace, um, which could take all sorts of forms, has primarily been interpreted in the courts as banning sexual harassment in the sense of sort of unwanted sexual advances and that kind of thing. 
Um, and she argues that this is simultaneously much too narrow and much too broad. So it's ignoring um, a lot of things that are harmful and that we would consider sexist, which might be sort of individual harassment of female employees that is maybe just not sexualized, but still very sexist. And maybe more importantly, it's also too narrow in that it ignores completely sort of broader dynamics around gender inequality in the workplace. Maybe the biggest issue is not harassment, but it's more sort of the structural conditions in a company, what kind of opportunities women have for advancement and so on. And then at the same time, she argues that in many ways it's too broad because the way it's been interpreted as banning kind of sexual advances has basically been interpreted, especially by employers and then secondarily by the courts who sort of draw from what employers are doing and the kind of best practices in the industry. It's been interpreted as just banning any kind of sexual behavior whatsoever in the workplace. And she argues that this is not just maybe undesirable because, for example, in some situations we might consider it acceptable for two colleagues to be in a relationship, but specifically it has very unequal impacts because it tends to be interpreted in a way where it cracks down much more strictly on people whose sexuality or whose kind of role in society is seen as non-normative in some way. So she gives a lot of examples of how it's disproportionately been used to, to penalize or to fire kind of queer employees or people of color because that behavior is more likely to be interpreted as inappropriate. So we've got this parallel or we've got this parallel of the idea of an environment that has a variety of different features, people within that environment, rules that have been set up to govern that environment. And perhaps we've created rules that focus us on the wrong problems, essentially. Exactly. Yeah. I think it's a point that's been made a lot of times by many people in the field of social media that um, that we can also say that the rules on content moderation are simultaneously too narrow and too broad, just in the sense that they're never perfectly accurate. So you always have some things that you would maybe want to be removed, even things that we would all agree on should definitely be removed. Um, but the, the algorithms or the human moderators that are being used don't catch those things. And we also have some things that we all agree are totally harmless and they get removed by accident. So already we can see some parallels in that sense. But what I'm trying to argue in the paper is really that not just the sort of the implementation of the law and content moderation in individual cases, but really the focus and the objective of the law at a broader level are also very over and under-inclusive. So they're not really addressing some problems that I think should be priorities. And at the same time, they're often being applied in a very over-inclusive way that harms minorities. You talk about the way this works in various ways. One is with regard to obligations to remove illegal content. Uh, the other is what you call informal pressure and private ordering. Mm -hmm. Can you explain those two areas? In terms of legal obligations to remove content, this is something where we've seen a lot of developments in the EU in the last kind of five or six years, I guess. So kind of the, the legal situation for most of this century so far has been that platforms almost never have obligations to remove illegal content, apart from when they've specifically been notified about that content and they know about the specific post or whatever it is, and then they have to take that down, which is a similar situation to um, copyright law in the US. In the last few years, we've seen increasingly qualifications to that where first injunctions can be used to order platforms to remove content. So still under this kind of general immunity law, you can't sue a platform for hosting something illegal and get damages from them. But you might be able to get an injunction saying that the platform has to start taking down not only that content, but maybe other content that might be similar or equivalent to it, which is a really big shift in the legal situation. And then also at the same time, we've seen the EU introducing more duties that are not to do with platforms being liable as intermediaries for sharing content, but where they are under kind of administrative law obligations to remove it. So specifically, we saw reforms in copyright law and then more recently 
um, the terrorist content regulation, which requires platforms to, if something is notified to them by law enforcement as terrorist content, they have to remove it within an hour. So that's very strict. And at the same time, within some member states, we've also seen kind of national legislation creating similar obligations. So the legal landscape has shifted a lot, and it's much more the case now that platforms might be under legal obligations to remove certain categories of content, um, especially when it comes to terrorist content and copyright infringement. And then at the same time, there's this phenomenon of private ordering, which is a phrase that has been used by various authors, um, in particular um, in a recent um, publication by Giancarlo Frozo and Sundet Mendes um, in a book on intermediary liability law that came out in 2020. And they go through this, this phenomenon of private ordering where it's essentially the case that, um, so the, the law is often creating kind of responsibilities or obligations for platforms to, to deal with online content in a way that broadly reflects the, the policy goals of the government. But it's not really giving them specific obligations about what exactly they have to do. It's giving them a lot of discretion to sort of determine what they think are the appropriate measures to pursue those goals. So, for example, there are additional provisions in the terrorist content regulation, which say if a platform has been designated as kind of high risk for, for the dissemination of terrorist content, then it has to itself decide and then implement a series of measures to reduce those risks, which can really be whatever it wants, but it will be sort of overseen by, by law enforcement authorities to see if those are adequate. And then in addition to those legal obligations, we're also seeing, as in many countries around the world, that EU governments are often just putting a lot of informal pressure on platforms to take more action on things like disinformation. So you'll see speeches by EU politicians where they say that the platforms are being irresponsible and they need to do more and so on and so forth. And that's also encouraging platforms to, to be more active around regulating and removing content. And this seems to be the area where governments are in some way kind of trying to enforce values. They start to talk about you know European values or um, other values, in other contexts that the government might want to advance. But you say, you know, that's a problem. These these are contested issues. Yeah, absolutely. So there's, of course, no sort of single consensus on what European values are. It's a very diverse region with 27 countries, and they all have their own sort of political conflicts and, and different ideologies about what's sort of the appropriate way to regulate online speech. And when it comes to, for example, again, using the example of terrorist content, where the EU has been very active, this is a hugely politicized and contested area in the implementation of counterterrorism law, both by law enforcement in general, and then now by the platforms as well as they're sort of following these state policy goals. Of course, we see very sort of consistent racist, racist and Islamophobic discrimination. We see that um, the focus is always on Islamist terrorism rather than far-right terrorism. Where I'm from in the UK, um, a new report came out just this week saying that there's been too much attention to far-right terrorism and that the government should really just focus on Islamism. This then also feeds into the way that it's moderated by the platforms. So the kinds of content that is getting notified to platforms and that they're then obligated to remove, the kinds of content the platforms are choosing to remove, supposedly voluntarily, is also still kind of guided by what they know to be the law enforcement policy priorities. And then that feeds into discrimination and unequal treatment of different groups. So, for example, something that we learned in the, the Facebook files leaks last year is that, you know, Facebook's moderation may seem like it's very inconsistent and often discriminatory in English. But for Arabic speaking users, it's far, far worse. There's often extremely arbitrary removals of political content and activism and journalism and so on, often because it gets inappropriately classed as terrorism. So you regard this kind of, I guess, reflective or emergent relationship between the state's interests and the 
social media platforms interests as generally kind of hewing to the commercial or creating, I guess, the commercial priorities for the social platforms. Is it possible to kind of even, I don't know, extract or think about all of this content moderation activity and regulation outside of their commercial priorities? So no, I don't think that it can be it can be separated in that way. This is also a point that Schultz makes in the employment context that essentially if we delegate the enforcement of sexual harassment law to employers, then of course employers are going to have some leeway to interpret it in a way that um, that serves their interests, that maybe cracks down very hard on behavior that they think is bad for the workplace environment or bad for productivity, but they might ignore other things that are harmful, but that aren't really bad for their profits. And just in that way, in social media, I think we see that corporations are much more incentivized to crack down on some forms of behavior that are kind of clearly harmful to them, as well as being socially harmful. Like, for example, very obvious sort of hate speech or um, objectionable content that's going to get them in trouble because their advertisers won't like it. We also see, for example, that almost all platforms crack down very, very hard on any kind of nudity or sexual content, again, because advertisers don't like seeing their ads next to that they're much less incentivized and they're also not really being encouraged by the law to address other sort of more background or structural policy problems that are often very closely linked to their commercial business models. So for example, the promotion of content that is not as such illegal or very openly racist or hateful, for example, but that might encourage that behavior by others. There was actually, there were some leaks from Facebook a couple of years ago where a whistleblower from within the company was saying that it's kind of standard practice in a lot of right-wing media environments to publish posts that are very sort of deliberately inviting um, hate speech or racist comments. And he, he called them hate speech, hate bait posts and said that the Facebook algorithm actually hugely rewards those posts because they get so many comments and then they're seen as high engagement and they get promoted. And this is something where, you know, the Facebook knows that its business is not going to be harmed by having this kind of controversial but highly engaging content and it's also not actually illegal. So there are no incentives to address those kinds of problems. You write that if we continue to kind of pursue this approach, quote, we may end up with sterile social media platforms, increasingly empty of unconventional self-expression, creative uses of copyright works and controversial political views, even while hate speech, disinformation and more insidious social harms, such as the discriminatory effects inherent in database profile and ad targeting continue to thrive. And so you're kind of suggesting that uh, if we kind of carry on in this regulatory path, we're going to end up with these terribly sort of sterile places. Is that what you see happening now with, for instance, the Digital Services Act uh, likely coming into effect? I think that the Digital Services Act is kind of a mixed bag in this respect. I think that it does represent an effort to address some of the problems that I'm talking about. So in some ways, it's moving away from this model of just saying, if content is illegal, delete it just looking at individual posts in a very isolated way. And there are provisions now that require the largest platforms to address systemic risks to public interests. Um, and it's kind of explicitly stated that that could involve sort of changing the way their platforms are designed, changing the ways they sort of operate internally within their companies. And it's a bit more focused on trying to create kind of healthier social media environments, which I think is a very good objective. But on the other hand, I think we should be realistic about how much change we can expect to see from these provisions. So first, they only really apply to the very largest platforms that have over 45 million users. So all of the obligations in the DSA for smaller platforms are still very stuck in this um, kind of paradigm of, you know, if you see something illegal, take it down. If the user wants it put back up, they can appeal. It's very much just looking at 
at individual posts and not at the sort of broader structural considerations that I've talked about. And then even the obligations for the largest platforms, although the commission is going to have some powers to, to oversee what these platforms are doing when they're implementing these obligations, it's very heavily based on sort of self-regulation and privatized enforcement. So the platforms will themselves have to conduct risk assessments, decide what they're doing that is risky, decide how they want to address those risks. And then once a year, they have to hire independent auditors to look at their risk assessments and decide whether they're all right. And as we talked about before, if you delegate um, the interpretation and the enforcement of regulations to companies in this way, then you know, the companies aren't going to do nothing, but they do have some space to interpret the rules in the way that suits them. So if we just ask Facebook to determine what is risky to public health or fundamental rights, it's highly likely that Facebook will think about, okay, what is risky to those interests that is also risky to our business and how can we address both of those things at once? And it's very unlikely that if there are sort of risks or measures to address risks that would involve fundamentally changing their business model and making less profit, maybe they won't prioritize that so much. I'm thinking a little bit about uh, some ideas we've discussed here in the past with Evelyn Dweck, who came on and talked about um, some work she'd been doing, which was sort of questioned the idea of the sort of judicial metaphor for how to do content uh, moderation. And, you know, things like the Facebook Oversight Board, which are so premised on the idea of these, you know, judging whether these individual infractions are uh, correctly handled or not. Um, do you see your thinking here kind of in a context of thinking that that maybe I don't know, similar to that in some ways? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, Evelyn Durek's work is amazing and has been a big inspiration for me as I've been sort of going into this field. And I cite her a lot in the paper. I think that one of the most valuable things that, that she emphasizes in her work is that we really need to think about content governance and not just content moderation in the narrow sense of deleting posts or leaving them up, but really much more broadly, how kind of platforms shape public discourse. We need to think of this as systemic and we need to think of it as sort of environmental. So instead of just looking at very isolated incidents of user behavior that we might see as inappropriate, we should really be looking at how we can create sort of platform environments and systems for governing those platform environments that can sort of shape the public discourse in a healthier way. The work that she's done on this is really invaluable, but um, she's fairly focused on the US legal context. So in a way, part of what I'm trying to do is bring some of these ideas to, to the EU where the, the legal landscape is very different and think about how we can critique EU regulation from this perspective. I can see a world coming where the large social media platforms, at least, do feel they are incentivized to essentially kind of smush the extremes, kind of push off anything that's, I guess, a little too weird or a little too challenging to a typical political discourse in a way. Maybe not deleted or maybe not, you know, uh, censor it as the word some folks might want to use there, but, but kind of just sweep it away a bit. So this idea of a kind of sanitized platform, you know, I can, I can see it actually being also supported by technology, technical developments to kind of manage polarization or, uh, you know, manage various forms of discord. Um, is that part of the world that you're sort of imagining here? Yeah, absolutely. I think we're already starting to see this in some ways. So we very regularly see um, accusations by users, and we're also starting to see some academic studies coming out on this. Um, the work of, of Carolina Ari has been very important on shadow banning. So when platforms don't actually delete content, but essentially just stop promoting it or um, radically decrease the audience, 
which is one way that they might want to deal with content that, as you say, sort of pushes the boundaries of mainstream taste. And this is, I think, very closely linked to what I was saying earlier about how appetizers don't want to be associated with certain content. And that very much influences what the platforms do. So YouTube has for a long time demonetized certain content that is that is not banned and that is allowed to stay on the platform, but that doesn't run with ads. And there's some evidence from a man in Germany who runs us like the YouTubers union. Um, so kind of an informal trade union for YouTube video makers. And he presents some evidence just from sort of experiments he's done on his own channel, that if your video is not running with ads, then it gets much, much less heavily promoted by the YouTube algorithm, because of course they don't have any incentive to give that a lot of views. Now, we also very recently saw Facebook announcing that it would allow advertisers to sort of click options that their ads don't run along, along certain categories of content. And one of those, for example, is all political content. So if you're an advertiser and you just don't want your ads next to anything that could be that could be a downer for users or that might sort of be associated with, with conflict or, or bad news, you can just ensure that your ad won't run next to that. But then if advertisers are doing that at scale, it will essentially mean that the platform has, has no incentive to promote that content. So I think, I think we're, we're very much on the way to seeing this process of sanitization where platforms are in, increasingly incentivized to just have a lot of very sort of anodyne middle of the road content that is sort of easily, easy to commercialize and doesn't really challenge mainstream discourse. I was having a conversation with my son the other day, who is only 11, but we were talking about this issue of kind of extreme rhetoric because he's in a debate club and we were talking about social media and some of these issues. And he was asking me about the idea of whether Elon Musk was right, that we should try to, you know, not satisfy the 10% on the extreme left or the extreme right, that if we're upsetting them on some level that we're doing things right. Um, And I was trying to explain to him, you know, well, what about an environmental activist? You know, what about an environmental activist who's in that extreme 10% on that issue and who may be the only one that sees things clearly based on the science or based on where things are headed? Do you really want to sort of diminish their, their point of view? Something that I write about a lot in the paper is the sort of suppression, whether that's deletion or just sort of shadow banning and non-amplification of queer content. And I think what's particularly interesting about this is that obviously these platforms are not sort of openly homophobic and deleting content from anyone that's gay. But, you know, in many ways, they're they're kind of actively trying to, to present themselves as very sort of diverse and queer friendly. But often they've tended to to delete or suppress content that is coming from queer people who are sort of more actively challenging kind of mainstream norms around sexuality and sexual expression. So for example, trans people that are documenting their transition, people that are that are posting more sort of suggestive or explicit content. So they're kind of promoting a very, again, sort of maybe like middle of the road or mainstream image of queerness, where, you know, if you sort of are in a very traditional monogamous relationship and having a family and sort of presenting yourself in a, in a fairly conventional way, then that's absolutely embraced and promoted as diversity. But people that are really maybe going further than that and sort of questioning mainstream norms around the family, sexuality, and so on, then that is, again, being suppressed or deleted. If one of the leaders of the social platforms were here, one of the people responsible for making decisions about how those platforms are governed, what would you ask of them? Uh, you know, looking through this lens that you've, you've created here around the sanitized platform, what would you encourage them to do differently? 
I would urge them to think really about how their platforms are designed and what kinds of behaviors they allow and encourage and what kinds of environments they're creating that people are interacting and really not just thinking about what are the rules that we enforce in content moderation, but really what's what's the context that we're creating and what kinds of, of behaviors and interactions are we promoting? But I mean, I also, it's, it's my personal opinion and this is kind of related to some work that I'm doing at the moment that we really can't just look at the social media corporations in their current form, many of them essentially headed by one person like Mark Zuckerberg or shortly probably Elon Musk and say, we expect you to do better. I think if we want them to do better, we have to really think about what are the underlying structures of the industry? Um, what are the incentives that these corporations have? Will corporations ever be incentivized to promote the public interest over profit? Probably not because that's not what corporations are designed for. So I think that it's really a big limitation of the current legislative program in the EU is that it's very much just looking at the industry in its current form and saying, how can we regulate this better? How can we prevent maybe some of the most harmful or objectionable behaviors? But I think there's really a, a failure of imagination to look at maybe the industry could just work completely differently. I think um, Victor Picard um, has done some amazing work in kind of media studies in this area where he really argues that we need to completely restructure the market and think about having, for example, public service or non-commercial social media, and that these are not particularly new ideas because these ideas have been around for, for decades or centuries in the context of other types of media. And it seems like now that social media have arrived, we've just forgotten all of those lessons and we're trying to start from scratch. What's next for you? What will you work on next? What's the next paper? So I'm working on a paper that is trying to focus on um, a bit more some of these issues around the political economy of the industry and um, trying to critique some of the, the approaches that I see in regulation at the moment that are very much focused on sort of procedure and how social media companies make decisions and could they make decisions in a, in a fairer way and trying to argue that we should really be thinking much more about who is making the decisions. Do we want it to be a big company that is owned by a couple of very powerful shareholders or would we want it to, for example, be some kind of cooperative or non-commercial or public service model? So I'm hoping that I can publish something on that in the next few months. Well, Rachel, I'll look forward to reading that piece and hearing more from you in the future. Thanks so much for the invitation to be here today. I really enjoyed it. That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones, Thanks to my guests, and thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.